Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and uh, good morning to those in the eastern region of the United States. Good afternoon uh, to those who are half a world away, and good evening to those uh, who are listening in after, after sundown in that country. Uh, we're focusing today on uh, an international uh, crisis of the heart, a cry from the heart in terms of humanitarian dynamic and component segment of the world's relationship with uh, Yemen, <clears throat> a troubled country, but a re resilient people. Uh, Yemen is in the midst of its fourth civil war, uh, uh, first since the late 1940s, then 1962 to 1970, <clears throat> 1994, and then now since uh, 2014. Uh, one of the reasons the country is as resilient as it is is because of its vibrant uh, civil society organizations linked with international civil society organizations. I've been privileged to uh, have been the only American official observer for all four of Yemen's first presidential and parliamentary elections. <clears throat> this year marks the 50th second year that of my visiting uh, Yemen on a regular basis, uh, 25 separate times, uh, meeting with the president uh, before uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh nine times, meeting with every foreign minister uh, since the 1960s. So this is uh, my frame of reference, in addition to being <clears throat> the president founding CEO of the National uh, Council on US-Arab uh, Relations. And what we hope to do in this hour is to have a conversation uh, between and amongst individuals who are specialized in Yemen, and especially uh, the uh, challenge of bringing about a meaningful, enduring, comprehensive ceasefire, uh, uh, including uh, the Houthis, and actually focusing on three seemingly disparate groups. Uh, there are the Houthis, uh, originally from northwestern uh, Yemen, still from there, but they've expanded their territorial reach <clears throat> far beyond uh, what their original uh, political demands have been. There's Lebanon's Hezbollah that is involved uh, in assisting the Houthis. Uh, there's an Iranian dynamic uh, involved uh, here. Uh, there is the Riyadh aspect to the internationally recognized government of President al-Hadi. That's one group. And second one has to do with the Southern Transitional Council, which is a secessionist movement uh, backed uh, by uh, Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates. And thirdly, not to lose sight of the al-Qaeda presence. This is what brought the United States uh, to focus on Yemen uh, in the first place with regard to intervention uh, in, under the umbrella of counterterrorism cooperation. Uh, so uh, in few countries could be more complex uh, than Yemen in an effort to comprehend this. And what we'll do is focus on the players from an empathetic point of view in terms of their legitimate needs, legitimate concerns, legitimate interests, legitimate goals, and in the process increase their hard to come by information, insight, knowledge, understanding, and the ability to dig deeper analytically on the uh, primary issues and challenges at hand. When you have a situation uh, where there are reports that a child in Yemen dies from malnutrition every 70 seconds, one can hardly have another issue as compelling, as timely, as urgent, as relevant uh, as the humanitarian dynamic of Yemen. Uh, we have uh, Abdulaziz Al-Anjari as the co-sponsor of this event. He's the founding CEO of Reconnaissance Research, a prominent uh, public policy institute in Kuwait, uh, as we are here in the United States. Uh, after his uh, welcoming remarks, uh, we'll turn to a special envoy uh, the President Biden's special envoy, Timothy Linderking, since February the 4th. He's a uh, former uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Arabian Peninsula Affairs, 
and former deputy chief of mission uh, to the ambassador to the embassy of the United States in uh, Riyadh. And then we have Sarah Charles, uh, who has been extensively and intensively involved in refugee and humanitarian issues, especially now uh, with the United States Agency for International uh, Development. And uh, after uh, Ms. Charles, we have David Gressley, the United Nations resident uh, coordinator uh, for efforts uh, to try to bring about a ceasefire and certainly the stabilization of Yemen, without which uh, the Yemeni people have no prospect to anticipate, to prepare, to plan uh, for the present, let alone the future. I turn the floor over to Abdulaziz al Algeri. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. It's an honor to have the opportunity to partner with the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations uh, again, and the Council have brought many decades of knowledge and understanding to the world about the Arab region. And we have to be very grateful for your sincere efforts throughout the years, and thank you as well for the efforts you will continue to do. We thank also uh, retired United States Colonel Abbas Dahouk for being the moderator for today's program. On behalf of Reconnaissance Research and Kuwait, good day to all of our viewers from all parts of the world. It is a privilege to co-host along with the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, the United States Special Envoy to Yemen, Mr. Tim Linderking, USAID Assistant to the Administrator, Sarah Charles, and UN Resident and Humanitarian Coordinator in Yemen, David Gresby. Reconnaissance Research was established in 2019 as an independent policy institute. It's a platform to allow the share of ideas and also a bridge to connect people to people, government to government, and vice versa. At Reconnaissance Research, we are dedicated to strengthening Kuwait's role as a constructive international mediator, and we are committed to bringing people together to engage in dialogues about some of the world's most pressing issues, just like the issue we will be discussing today. The continuing challenges in enhancing Yemen's own security and stability are not lost on anyone here today. His Highness, the late Amir Sheikh Sabah Al-Ahmed Al-Sabah, the current Amir, His Highness Sheikh Nawaf Al-Ahmed Al-Sabah, as well as the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sheikh Dr. Ahmed Nasser Muhammad Al-Sabah, have all made clear that they are steadfast in working to reduce violence and the humanitarian suffering facing the Yemeni people. Kuwait remains dedicated as a partner in the pursuit of a peaceful resolution to the Yemen crisis. All countries, including Kuwait, are waiting to see what the United States Special Envoy for Yemen, Mr. Tim Linderking, a proven, experienced, and trusted diplomat can do to assist Yemen and the Yemeni people. Yemen is a special place for all Arabs, as history proves, many Arabs hail, their hail and trace their roots back to Yemen. We hope that Mr. Tim's efforts in coordination with the United Nations can resolve this conflict and lead to a peaceful and diplomatic solution. We all know that the multiple armed conflicts have resulted in one of the world's worst humanitarian crisis in recent history. This bloody conflict has claimed the lives of innocent civilians and displaced millions of Yemeni people in one of the world's already poorest countries uh, around. The wounds suffered by the grieving Yemeni people are great and the bleeding is still continuing. There needs to be a Yemeni reconciliation and it will take real leadership and courage to support that from 
all concerned parts of the world. With that, I thank you and thank Dr. John Duke Anthony again for his efforts. And I thank Mr. Linder King, Ms. Charles, and Mr. Gresley for speaking with us today. Colonel Abbas. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ablaziz, for uh, your remarks. And um, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony, for uh, introducing us uh, for today. Good day to all our uh, listeners here, uh, here abroad, and uh, welcome to our uh, conversation today on the uh, humanitarian uh, crisis in Yemen with uh, uh, our special uh, speakers um, um, who are undoubtedly, uh, they understand uh, all about uh, diplomacy uh, and aid uh, very well, especially when it comes to, uh, to Yemen. As Dr. Anthony mentioned, uh, Yemen is a complex uh, um, country. Uh, it is indeed conquest and uh, complex, and uh, it's been uh, at war for a, a long time, and it's becoming a regional issue and also an international issue. Uh, but as, if you look around in the region, uh, there's another country was like Yemen. It's been uh, doing that for the last 20 years, Afghanistan. And at the end of the day, we witness uh, today that the uh, Afghan government, uh, the Taliban, who was opposing the opposition to the government, and also the Afghan people are sitting together to identify how they go forward uh, themselves. And, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, that will be the same thing and they end up, uh, they agree on a ceasefire and go to the table. And with that, I, uh, I'm looking forward to hear to uh, our speakers all about diplomacy and, and aid. And uh, let's uh, start with our um, uh, special envoy uh, uh, to Yemen, Mr. Lindeking. Uh, Tim, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Abbas. It's great to be with you. And uh, John Duke, it's always a pleasure. Um, Abdulaziz, great to see you again. Special thanks to, uh, to the National Council for organizing this event. And uh, it, it's also an honor to serve on a panel with uh, two great colleagues, Sarah Charles and David Gressley, who I regard as, as uh, true humanitarians as well. And when uh, Dr. John Duke talks about um, a, a cause of the heart, I think that we really approach it that way. And I believe that the, um, the Biden administration approaches it that way as well. Uh, when I was uh, announced as the new special envoy, the president asked me really to do two things, to engage on two tracks. And one is the, um, the humanitarian uh, the humanitarian track, which I think we'll talk about extensively today, and the other is a political track to advance a durable solution to the Yemen conflict. And I think the dual, the dual mandate reflects the U.S. commitment to understanding the humanitarian crisis facing Yemenis, as well as our understanding that the human crisis, humanitarian crisis and the war are connected and here's a key point, I think, that as long as the war continues, the humanitarian crisis will continue to worsen. And at the same time, the increasing economic stability will likely fuel further conflict. So we have a real need, I think, to address both of these tracks at the same time, but not let one wait on the other. I think our, our audience probably knows that the roots of the crisis are deep, it's been years of instability and weak governance in Yemen. It's led to the erosion of basic services and a troubled economy. And the disruption of a peaceful political transition and the outbreak of war almost seven years ago have greatly accelerated this trend. So as we've witnessed the destruction coming from the war and the instability, we've witnessed persistent challenges to the free flow of aid goods and people throughout the conflict for which all parties bear responsibility. There aren't any easy solutions to address the humanitarian crisis. Obviously, we're gonna talk more about the need of donors to do more, but we should be wary of those who do suggest that there are easy solutions. What I've seen is these are often just the latest attempts by conflict actors to weaponize the humanitarian situation. And so really, from where I stand, I think the United States also, the only way to durably address persistent constraints to the flow of goods, aid, and people is to stop the fighting. And the only way to begin addressing the root causes of the humanitarian crisis is to reach a political solution to the conflict. 
That is why the United States continues to urge, and why I do so again today, the need for a comprehensive nationwide ceasefire and swift transition to political talks. I would say that despite an unprecedented international and regional consensus on the need to resolve the conflict, and I have uh, spent um, considerable time on the road during my appointment in February, visiting all of the countries in the region, talking to the Yemeni actors inside and outside of Yemen, talking to the regional governments. And I do say, and I think this is cause for hope, that there is a stronger international consensus to end the conflict than there, than there has been over the course of the last six years. What we haven't seen is a full commitment to engage directly and urgently on the ceasefire. And I think that one of the areas that we've continued to point out is the offensive in Marib that is being launched and conducted by the Houthis, which appears to have a singular focus and is a particularly problematic issue. And that is because uh, Marib, as you know, is a refuge and a safe haven for many Yemenis who have fled other parts of the country. There are a million displaced people already in Marib. And so when we talk about the fighting in Yemen, we can see immediately the case of Marib, where continued fighting and a continued offensive by the Houthis will have very negative consequences for an already very stretched uh, humanitarian infrastructure. Also on the positive side, I'm glad to see that um, there is uh, engagement again on the Riyadh Agreement, which is the effort, uh, as John Duke mentioned, to bring uh, the South uh, into greater stability, and that will improve basic services for Yemenis. We think that as this uh, Riyadh Agreement goes forward, it will create more opportunities for the Yemen government to return to Aden, and indeed for the provision of basic services all the basic elements of infrastructure in the South uh, to go forward. And so we have, um, I think as Sarah will articulate here, uh, a, very, uh, a very dire humanitarian situation that is exacerbated by the onset of COVID as well. And we need to continue to bring life-saving assistance to more than 10 million uh, Yemenis on a regular basis, despite all of the constraints. Not only is the humanitarian response preventing untold suffering, it is helping to preserve a basis for Yemen's recovery. And so the U.S. continues to welcome efforts by the international community to build on humanitarian assistance with additional efforts to prevent the collapse of institutions. Let me close by just suggesting three areas where the international community can do more to bolster these critical efforts. First, uh, the international community, particular region, particularly regional actors, must increase humanitarian funding, including by following through on more than $200 million in pledges from the March 1st Donors Conference. The Yemen humanitarian response is currently funded at 43%. That's just not enough for the kind of needs that we are seeing out there. And if there aren't additional contributions in the next few months, we will see programs close down or have to decrease in scope. Second, the uh, international community must continue to push the Houthis to stop the offensive in Marib and to engage uh, in a comprehensive nationwide ceasefire. The Houthis don't own the, 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 the set of violence alone. Obviously the Saudi-led coalition has borne its share of responsibilities as well. But the fact is that the Houthis are not winning in Marib. It is a stalemated conflict, and the continued fighting there is putting millions of vulnerable people at uh, increased risk and, and risking further displacement. And finally, the Republic of Yemen government, Saudi Arabia, and the Houthis must take action to address the fuel shortages in northern Yemen. Fuel imports via the port of Hudaydah are only a third of what they were last year during the same period. While commercial and humanitarian food and other commodities continue to flow through Hudaydah, increased oil fuel prices are driving up the cost of these goods, as well as basic services, putting them out of reach of many Yemenis. So we applaud UN efforts to reach agreement between Houthis and Yemen government on a mechanism to regularize 
the flow of fuel and ensure that tax revenues from fuel imports are used to pay civilian salaries. That's a key issue. But we need to continue to, to bear down on that particular problem. We also urge the Houthis to avoid stockpiling and manipulating fuel prices, which we fear has kept prices artificially high, even as fuel has arrived through Hudaydah and Overland from southern ports. The humanitarian and economic crisis in Yemen is staggering, but these three steps will significantly mitigate Yemeni suffering and put us on a firmer path toward peace. With that, that concludes my opening remarks. Thank you very much. A, uh, a very, uh, I mean, heavy plan to uh, to uh, uh, to work with, especially uh, um, uh, the uh, humanitarian piece of it. Uh, while uh, uh, military operations uh, ongoing uh, almost um, uh, everywhere. So it is a, it is a daunting task to, uh, on the diplomatic side. And this force also is even, uh, even uh, more complex part on the humanitarian. Uh, with that, I will uh, turn the, uh, uh, the mic to uh, uh, Ms. Sarah Charles to uh, tell us uh, um, uh, uh, about the uh, humanitarian aid. Thank you, Abbas, and thank you, Dr. John Duke and Abdulaziz uh, for inviting me here today. And, and thank you to my fellow panelists. I really could not ask for a better team to be working on these very complicated issues. As Tim said, addressing the suffering of the Yemeni people really has been uh, central to the Biden, uh, Biden policy uh, from the beginning uh, towards Yemen. And I, I'm really grateful for, for Tim's partnership and of course, for, for David's work on the, on the ground in Yemen. Uh, on a personal note, I, as some of you who participated in, in an event a couple of months ago know, I first traveled to work in Yemen 11 years ago, and this beautiful country and its people are very near and dear to my heart. As you've just heard from Tim, the U.S. is gravely concerned about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which remains one of the worst in the world. And as this group well knows, two thirds of the country's population is now in need of humanitarian assistance. That's more than 20 million Yemenis who struggle every day to survive without basic necessities, including more than 2 million young children facing deadly malnutrition this year. Over the course of this conflict, now entering the seventh year, we've seen families uprooted over and over again as conflict lines shift, made more vulnerable each time they're forced to flee. We're seeing this most acutely now in Marab, as Tim mentioned, where the Houthis' latest offensive is killing civilians and threatens to displace hundreds of thousands of more people. After years of conflict and growing poverty, Yemen is already in a precarious situation. While aid from the international community has so far prevented vulnerable populations from slipping into famine, this recent escalation of violence is only increasing humanitarian need and placing further strain on an already stretched humanitarian operation. Our brave partners are urgently scaling up assistance in Marib despite very significant challenges affecting the community. With USAID support, the humanitarian community provided emergency aid, including shelter, health, safe water, hygiene supplies, and cash to nearly 14,000 families who have been forced to flee this fighting since January but it remains extremely dangerous and logistically difficult for aid workers to travel to Marad. And the Houthis' indiscriminate attacks on civilian populations puts our partner's brave staff on the ground, who are almost all Yemeni, in constant danger. We're also hearing reports of humanitarians in Marad being detained and harassed by security forces, putting them in even more risk and furthering hampering the urgently needed scale-up of assistance. Unfortunately, these challenges are not confined to Marib. Throughout Yemen, access to populations in need continues to hinder the international community's humanitarian operation. Insecurity and deliberate obstruction by authorities prevent us from delivering aid at a scale needed to address the growing need. With our humanitarian partners and other donors, we continue to advocate for the Houthis and the authorities in the South to enable unimpeded humanitarian access to people in need across the entire country. Humanitarian assistance is vital to saving lives and reducing suffering, but only if it reaches those who need it most. It is also true that aid alone cannot meet humanitarian needs. Both humanitarian supplies and commercial imports, especially food, fuel, and medicine must be allowed to flow freely through all entry points throughout the country without delay. 
As we have said before, prolonged mm. disruptions to food imports into northern Yemen would increase the risk of famine for thousands, if not millions of people. As Special Envoy Linder King just discussed, fuel shortages in northern Yemen in particular are making humanitarian crises even worse. In recent months, restrictions on fuel imports into Hodeida port and high fuel prices have caused delays of urgent humanitarian activities across northern Yemen. While we welcome recent progress in allowing some fuel ships to enter Hodeida, we must reach a longer term solution for regular uninterrupted fuel importation and distribution. Commercial and humanitarian food and other commodities have continued to flow through Hodeida port with few problems over the last few months. But without the fuel, these commodities cannot be processed or delivered to the communities that need them most. Fuel shortages are also hindering the delivery and access to healthcare and other critical services. It's essential that fuel be available and accessible consistently in country. We also must see an end to the hoarding and manipulation of fuel markets that continue to pose a major challenge even after fuel is imported. And we will continue to work with Special Envoy Linder King, UN Resident Coordinator Gressley, our partners and other donors to continue advocating for solutions to these challenges. At the same time, we will continue to do everything we can to reach Yemen's most vulnerable populations with the aid that they rely on to survive. Through our UN and NGO partners, we're responding to urgent needs throughout the entire country, providing food assistance, working to prevent and treat malnutrition, distributing basic necessities such as hygiene and shelter supplies to recently displaced families, rehabilitating water tanks and pipes so communities have safe water, and helping parents earn an income and rebuild their livelihoods. Every month, food provided by the United States reaches 8.5 million vulnerable Yemenis. We're also supporting efforts to combat COVID-19, including by supporting health centers where, vac where vaccines provided by the US-funded COVAX initiative are administered. And additionally, USAID supports UN humanitarian air services, which are critical components of COVID-19 response providing air transport in and out of the country for aid workers and transporting critical medical supplies to Yemen. Just as the Red Sea ports are critical infrastructure, so too is the Sana'a airport for the entire humanitarian structure inside the country. And it's crucial to use these in-house flights <coughs> and crucial that they can continue to operate there. We have consistently been one of the largest donors to the humanitarian response. This year, the U.S. has already provided $350 million, and we expect to announce more assistance in the coming months and continue to pr <coughs> prioritize preventing famine and addressing other critical needs. But we can't do this alone. While we commend the generous pledges made by other donors so far this year, the fact is that more funding is required to address growing needs. We continue to urgently call on donors to fulfill their pledges from the March 1st pledging conference quickly so funding they have promised can get into the hands of UN and NGO organizations working on the ground and critically get supplies to those who need it the most. We also urge those donors who have not yet stepped up to do so. But as we work to meet urgent needs, we also recognize that humanitarian assistance cannot solve the root causes of this crisis. As you just heard Special Envoy Linder King reiterate, there must be a political solution to this conflict to end the people of Yemen suffering. USAID is working urgently with our colleagues at the State Department to support the U.S. dual-track approach to the crisis that Special Envoy Linder King just outlined. And together, we're committed to bringing peace, prosperity, and security to Yemen. With that, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Indeed, it's, it is a dollars uh, aid and uh, also uh, uh, tell the story of uh, outside Yemen to uh, to motivate um, uh, outsiders and uh, and goodwill people to donate to uh, to the cause of Yemen. Uh, thanks for for your remark. Uh, this um, uh, now uh, we uh, go, Mr. David. Uh, I look at uh, David as the uh, humanitarian aid commander on the ground. I mean, he is. Uh, He's not uh, uh, performing combat operation, but he's uh, out there to save lives and uh, distribute uh, hum humanitarian aid evenly to uh, obviously people under the Houthi control and under the government control and, 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 and try, uh, try to find ways to, uh, to for, uh, as well. This is a tough task to do, it, especially uh, under fire. 
this is one of the few places in the world where you have uh, combat operations ongoing at the same time you have USAID or UN try to also infuse uh, humanitarian simultaneously uh, aid um, uh, during conflict. Uh, so with that, I would like, I'm look forward to your observations uh, from, uh, from the ground up. Um, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be with all of you today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to, to speak on this extremely important subject. Um, I just recently arrived uh, in March. Um, so um, I don't have the, the decades of experience that some of you do, but uh, this is a this is an incredible country that doesn't deserve the crises that it's going through. It's been repeated many times that this war has been going on six seven years now. It's a fourth war. Um, uh, this is uh, this is getting to be too much, frankly. Um, there is no substitute for peace. And I, I, before I get into my presentation, I just want to thank applaud. The U.S. government for its efforts on both the, the, the search for peace, which is not going to be simple or straightforward, but also for the humanitarian track and the, the tremendous support that we're seeing coming to uh, the partners on the ground for the people of Yemen. And, and thank you very much for that continued push. And I think this today's meeting is another example of that larger commitment. I, I view the, the war, it's, it's, a, it's a cause, in my view, of three crises, and I want to speak about them. A humanitarian crisis, which we've talked about quite extensively, but also a protection crisis and an economic crisis. Let me just highlight the elements of, of those three, uh, because I think we need to work simultaneously on all three aspects. We do consider this, it's not just me, but uh, our colleagues in the United Nations, the worst humanitarian uh, crisis uh, currently facing uh, any, any country uh, in the world at this time. Uh, we're speaking of uh, two thirds of the population, 20 million people in need of assistance, 16 million in acute food insecurity, 2.3 million children malnourished, uh, facing acute malnutrition, uh, um, Dr. Anthony mentioned something about one child dying every every 60, every minute, roughly every minute. That's that's not not acceptable. 82% of the districts in the country have very limited to non-existent health services, and in general, basic services are in in the process of collapsing uh, and are at severe risk of not being able to continue to provide even the most minimal services. There's a protection crisis. Um, in the country, about one out of six districts are actually on the front line, and that number of districts that are on the front line of the fight uh, continues to grow year to year. So 51 districts as, as we speak today, 4 million people displaced, considerable civilian casualties. Last month was the worst month uh, in, in, in several years, in fact, in the number of civilian casualties, in large part to the, the fight that's taking place in Mara that uh, special envoy, uh, Mr. Leonard King spoke about a few moments ago. But there are also continued issues of landmines, unexploded ordnance, IEDs. I read reports almost every day of a child or children or families injured, killed by these devices. This is a serious protection issue. As in many crises, those who are most at risk are the most marginalized communities minorities, uh, women, disabled, uh, and we have to have a special focus on, on that, uh, those groups of, uh, of individuals as well. And we're trying to keep a close focus on that as we go forward. And as is known, uh, Yemen is a major uh, uh, transit center for migrants, uh, particularly those going into Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that's uh, actually a significant part of the protection problem that we face in the country. The third crisis, the economic crisis, uh, contributes significantly to both of the other two. Uh, the, the economy has collapsed by about 50% since the beginning of the war. It was the poorest country in the region before the war started. So you can imagine what 50% re uh, reduction in the economy means. It means the collapse of incomes. Businesses don't function. Um, they therefore increasing unemployment. Government uh, personnel don't get paid. The salaries don't, uh, don't come. The incomes are lost. Um, you find the same thing in, in terms of IDPs who no longer have employment. 
Uh, there's significant loss of purchasing power. And this is a major problem of food insecurity is the means to buy food just is not there. The issue of fuel restrictions plays into all of this as well. Um, um, the, the fuel literally fuels uh, business. It fuels um, our humanitarian response. Uh, and we need to, to make sure that we minimize the impact of the crisis. The intervention to uh, restart some of the vessels coming in with fuel is very real in the impact. We see uh, flour mills being able to produce flour from imported WFP uh, uh, grain. Uh, we see, uh, you know, most recently I had a, a visit from a, the head of the cement factory, which is outside of Amran, in Amran just outside of Sana who came in to thank us for the, the push to get fuel oil in for his uh, factory, um, which allowed him to restart and re-employ several thousand people. And uh, as I've described to many, it has a knock-on impact. The, 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 the business that restarted not only employs people, they employ people to transport the, the product, cement. Um, several thousand people involved in the distribution, people involved in construction, get their job back. Uh, we were talking tens of thousands of people, maybe 20, 30,000 people who have an income now because of that fuel arrival. And you multiply that times five people in a household, you're talking 150,000 people that now are in a better position from a food security point of view, as well as uh, overall purchasing power. So the collapse of income is a, is a critical issue. The cost of food, the conflict has driven up the cost of food. Uh, for many reasons. Much of the food is imported, some food assistance, much of it commercial. Uh, war risk insurance adds about $200 million a year to the cost of, uh, of uh, food coming in. Restrictions of movement uh, add to the, to the transport costs. The verification system, which we believe can be uh, uh, simplified, adds to that cost. And if you look at all of these costs, we're talking about a half a billion dollars in additional uh, uh, costs for importation of food, which could rather be used uh, for uh, increasing the purchasing power by reducing the cost of food. Uh, and finally, the stability of the economy. This has been mentioned before, the, the rapid devaluation of the real, the, the currency instability also reduces purchasing power. So we need to find ways of, even in the course of a conflict, to deal with the, these three crises. Um, and and what, what, do we, what do we specifically need in those areas? As was already mentioned, 43% of our $3.8 billion plan has been funded and received, which is a, a start, but it's only a start. Uh, we have a $2.1 billion gap. We are afraid if we don't receive additional funding by this summer, July, August, and that's at our doorstep as I speak, many activities uh, will have to stop. There was a good approach on the food security side to scale up over last year. And I want to I talk about last year, actually, because of the reduction of assistance last year. The full food requirements of those in need was not met or even close to being met. The rations were cut in half. And what that does over time is it exacerbates the, the uh, uh, food insecurity of, of the population because they're not getting enough. Uh, so we're not even maintaining them at the level that they were at previously, but there's a degradation. So we started out this year with a, with a deficit. Now with a surge of, of funding that came in, it allowed us to scale up at least to 100% for the, those at risk of famine and three quarters of those on the doorstep of famine. And that's, that has had a positive impact, but we're not yet with the funding to sustain that. And we could simply compound the problem that happened last year if that assistance does not come in. So the funding gap needs to be filled. And, and, and it's not just food or not just nutrition, it's health, it's education. We can't afford the loss of another generation without education, protection, shelter. Um, the, the, I'll, I'll speak about IDPs in a second, but we need to, we, we don't really have the funds to fully support the magnitude of the crisis. Um, so funding is a critical need. Access has been mentioned. Um, uh, this is one thing that we, we, we really want to push extremely hard this year is to maximize our access. I'm happy that we were able to go into MARV very early. I went in myself in, in early March 
to try to uh, re to establish an uh, air corridor there, which is now functional uh, and has allowed a, a scale up of work on, on the ground uh, through uh, contributions coming in from member states, also our SURF funding. Uh, and I think that's good, but I'm not satisfied with that either. Um, we're just completed a, a security uh, assessment along the West Coast, uh, going from Aden all the way up to the border uh, front line in Hudeda, the south side of that front line. There are communities there that have not been reached in two years. We need to reach those communities. Uh, next month, early next month in July, I hope to see uh, a security assessment going into the Al Jaf government, which is north of Marib. We don't talk about it very much. Um, but it's been equally affected by the same Marib offensive. We have uh, many IDPs that are not being served right now. We need better access. We're going to find that access and, uh, and act uh, there. Uh, likewise, with the two authorities, we, we run into constant uh, restrictions. Um, it's complicated. I'm not going to describe it, but I will just simply say that this is a constant negotiation that's required constant engagement. And we will carry out that engagement and we will, we will tackle each of these things as they come in order to maximize the uh, access. But the consequence of these restrictions, uh, we have 16 and a half million people who are in areas where there are restrictions. Of those, we have about 6 million that we have real difficulty getting to. So that's the core group that we really need to focus on and we will continue to work in that, in that direction. We also want to improve the quality of our assessments of the situation. We want to give member states donors accurate information of what the situation is on the ground. We've gone a long ways to harmonize our approach and get agreements to have the freedom to move to those areas to properly assess. So those are some immediate uh, objectives. On the protection side, uh, the quality of support of IDPs. I think we need a serious look. I visit, I was in Sada and I was in uh, Aja just this last week, spent four days on the ground uh, with the humanitarian actors, but also of course with authorities, both SANA based as well as uh, from uh, the two governments. Um, I, I can tell you uh, th this is a serious situation, the quality of support we're providing to IDPs. We need to recognize these are long-term displacements, not short-term. We need to find real solutions for them that provide a level of dignity for them because they're not in dignified situation right now, including employment and employment opportunities. So we'll work on that. The support to the marginalized, that has been a major focus of our Yemen uh, pooled fund uh, to really focus on, on those communities that have been forgotten. Uh, we need to, to reach out to them and we need to hear from our beneficiaries how we're doing, how we're working so that we do, we do better. Migrants, I would, when I was in Sada, I continued north towards the Saudi border and I was able, to, well, it was, I witnessed the, the, the large number of migrants that are passing through. Significant burden in, in, in country. We need to work, I think, very proactively on, on those who are at most risk. I was in a hospital, one of the hospitals I visited had both Yemeni as well as um, um, uh, for non-Yemeni non uh, migrants. Uh, they were there because they were injured, shot in some cases. Uh, some cases they were injured through falls, trying to find ways to, to the Saudi border. Um, the, the stories I hear about their journey is actually quite horrifying. We, we know that there was a ship that was bringing migrants that, that, that capsized, perhaps hundreds, uh, two, three hundred people may have perished. We don't know the number. Uh, these things are a regular uh, uh, occurrence. And so, and, and even in Sada, there's over 2,000 migrant prisoners there uh, that we need to assess and see where we can help support those in, in those conditions. Um, we need to work with the parties in conflict to reduce civilian casualties. We can't continue to see each month reported more casualties than we've had before. It's, it's extremely important. For that, we need attribution for what happened and engagement with the parties to, to demand that uh, changes be taken in the nature of the conflict, how they carry out their tactics on, on the ground and, and in the air. Um, I mentioned mine action. We need greater access for, for supporting mine action. I, I think it's intolerable that four days out of seven, five days out of seven, someone is injured or killed um, uh, in Yemen because of that. 
Um, the third area, uh, economy. Now, this is where I want to, to take the UN in, a, in an expanded direction. We have to sustain our work on humanitarian. We need to really scale up on protection, but I, I would like to see an economic approach as well. Um, because I think we can work on the food security issue from, the, from both angles, direct humanitarian assistance, but look at the economy and see even in the course of a conflict, what we can do to increase income, issues of salaries, issues of, of sustaining businesses, public works uh, kinds of uh, initiatives, uh, direct support for employment for IDPs and refugees, supporting marginal groups in terms of their uh, productivity uh, to produce an income for their own lives. These are issues that we can work on. Cost of food coming in. I've mentioned the three major elements. I won't go over that again, but I think collectively, collectively, we can find solutions to that. And the stability of the economy and the stability of the purchasing power uh, is important. Increase income, decrease costs, stabilize, and I think we can reduce the need for humanitarian assistance even in this situation. And I wanna finish very quickly. Um, uh, since I'm speaking to a largely American audience, I, I believe, uh, I was born and raised in Missouri. So it's, as you know, it's a show me state. So for the moment, I'm going to have to assume the conflict will continue until I'm shown otherwise. Um, but we need to have a contingency plan for peace uh, at the same time. When peace opportunities come, we need to be in a position to, to, to seize them. If when the cease, with a ceasefire comes, uh, we need to be ready to support in these three areas. What are the additional things that can be done in a ceasefire that can't be done in a conflict? This is why I'm working with the special envoys team to see how we can, uh, we can incorporate this into the negotiations on a ceasefire. Uh, likewise, with the final settlement, we need to be ready for that. And, and the discussions need to be well-informed in terms of negotiations so that the peace dividends, assuming we get to that point, come quickly to solidify peace and not be delayed. I've been in too many environments where these things have been long delayed uh, and, and threatened the very agreements that have been so difficult to achieve. So I will conclude. We need to work on the three crises of, of, of humanitarian protection and economy. We need to do it in the context of conflict today, hopefully a ceasefire tomorrow, and ultimately a, a, a final political settlement so that we can help Yemen return back to the kind of prosperity its citizens are looking for, the kind of stability for their families that they're looking for. And we can only do that through peace. So thank you very much for your support. More importantly, your engagement uh, in the region and around the world for peace in Yemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. It is a, it is a daunting, daunting task uh, indeed. I just hope you, um, you find um, part, Yemeni partners on the ground to be as enthusiastic as you to, to put uh, the, your plan into action and accomplish these three goals, goals you are uh, striving here. I know, I know I don't have a lot of time here to uh, ask most of them, but uh, I have to start with the, uh, the COVID-19 because this is, a, this is a question of um, uh, importance to everyone everywhere. And we did mention a little bit, but uh, we do hear uh, reports from the human rights that uh, and the Houthis are uh, stopping the uh, uh, information about the, the benefit of the uh, vaccines and so on. Uh, so uh, what is the status of vaccination, for example? Uh, is, there enough is there enough vaccination in, uh, in, in Yemen? And is there a plan from the United States to, to send to, uh, to, to them? And how do you do it uh, if, if under, the, under the areas of conflict, I understand it's hard to do, but what about the areas uh, that outside the conflict, areas under the, uh, uh, the government of Yemen? We do hear about Yemen as a, and a monolithic entity, but there's a lot of pockets that we can do perhaps more, more than others. The other quick question too on, uh, on Marib. I know uh, uh, Tim talks a lot about Marib, about the importance of Marib, importance of ceasefire and all that. But for, for us here from, from the Washington outside Yemen, could you just tell us say if Marib fell, the, the government of Yemen will fall as well. So just to give us a little uh, more uh, info on this briefly, why Marib is important to, in, the, in the conflict of Yemen. Whoever wants to respond to that. Did you want me to respond on the first one or? No, I mean, however, that's, uh, that's opening, sorry, opening questions to everybody. Whoever feels wants to uh, respond to it on the COVID-19 and Marib. 
I think Yemen, maybe Tim will talk about Maritim a bit and then uh, COVID-19, Sarah or David, you, you choose. Well, let me just jump in and on COVID-19. I can, I can start on that uh, just to, to move it forward. Um, I, I think one of the realities, the most important reality for Yemen in terms of COVID and vaccination is there's not enough vaccine regardless of access. Uh, we only have 360,000 doses that have arrived through the COVAX program. We expect another tranche of about 360, but in a population of 30 million, that's nothing. Um, so um, we also face a lot of hesitancy here. Uh, even if we had more, I'm not sure uh, what percentage of the population would, would accept it. So um, we do have, uh, but to answer your specific question, yes, there are restrictions in, in the distribution of the vaccine here in the um, uh, sauna controlled uh, areas. Uh, they have allowed us to proceed with 10,000 vaccination of health workers at least. So that was at least a start to get into this. Uh, but for the population at large, there is no uh, mass campaign. It's not a question of access. It's a question of getting the, the authorization to allow that to, to happen. So that is a piece of work we're still working on. Uh, but in the South, we do have the, the ability to, to access uh, populations and, and quickly utilizing that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not gonna be enough. And, and we're gonna to have to continue, the most important thing in both cases is that we're gonna to have to continue the mitigating measures that we've been doing for the last year uh, because we really have no choice. And it's gonna take, even by the end of the year, we're not gonna have a very high percentage of the population either side vaccinated. So the mitigating measures are critical uh, as we go forward. And it's complicated by all the other diseases that come and as a result of this, uh, thank, this, thank you. That's, that's this conflict. Thank you. I can, I can jump in very quickly. I know you're short on time, but um, just to just to add, we're obviously supporting um, Dave at the UN and, and other partners work to mitif, mitigate the impacts of COVID. I think we also recognize what David flagged, which is we have supply issues um, to, to make COVAX uh, viable. And it's why the US government is not only supporting COVAX with, with funding, but actually President Biden announced at the G7 just a couple of weeks ago that the US would be um, working with manufacturers here in the United States to donate um, 500 million doses, most of that through COVAX and, and also rallied other G7 partners to, towards a goal of 1 billion doses. So I think we fully recognize um, the need for, for more doses to make COVAX viable. But as David said, in, in the near term, um, our, our, our support is really focused on, on those mitigation efforts and, and, and frankly support for, for all of the the health effects, not not just uh, COVID, but other infectious disease that that people in Yemen face. Okay, thanks. On the yeah, I think to add on the, the importance of Marib in Yemen. Sure, thank you. I think it's a very important question. I mean, first of all, Marib is the uh, stronghold of the uh, uh, Yemen government in in northern Yemen. There's also an oil platform there. And as noted uh, by myself and, and our other panelists, you have about 1 million IDPs. Marib over the years has become a, a refuge, a safe haven for Yemenis from all over the country who have fled other parts of the conflict and, uh, and been able to remain safely there. All of that is under threat. The dream of a political process, um, Abbas, is that issues like control of Yemen's resources, what to do with IDPs and how to allow them to return home um, and who controls the wealth of Yemen is decided not through the barrel of the gun, but through a political process that brings Yemenis together to make those decisions um, together. And I think we have to break the cycle. And this is, this is central to my mission. Break the cycle that any Yemeni group or outsider feels that the only way to attain uh, progress is 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 on the battlefield and Yemen is Marib is a point where we really have to um, I think change that particular type of behavior so that's why I think there's so much attention by the international community both on the political side the humanitarian side to get Marib out of that cycle of violence Thank you. The, thank you that's a good um, uh, explanation the um, uh, I wanted to
to uh, move uh, the child soldier uh, uh, in, in Yemen. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Arabia from the uh, King Salman Humanitarian Aid and Relief Center about probably a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he mentioned that the topic is of uh, importance for him and the center to tackle uh, in, in Yemen. And we also know that uh, women and children are the first victims of war. Um, uh, we also, uh, David mentioned that you have over 2 million uh, children malnutrition, uh, suffering from malnutrition, and, and, and the rest of the children, probably most of them not going to school and being indoctrinated to go to war. Um, I myself grew up in the Civil War in Lebanon. I was a child, uh, and I have a cousin that died at 16 as well in war, but we never chanted death to America, we never chanted death to Israel or, or damn to the Jews. But that, but that's in, this indoctrination is happening in Yemen, and I think those are the, you're talking about the partner, the future of Yemen is all these children. So is there any, uh, is, is the aid or the, uh, on the political side, is there a chance, is there a talk about the, uh, making this international crime, for example, and make sure hold the people that does that to accountable? And what on the, on the humanitarian side, what are we doing to basically to prevent them from being indoctrinated, uh, help their families from um, not making that happen as we go along and and, and conducted the the other uh, the you know issues that had medical, economic, and and protection as well. So that's that's open question to whoever wants to jump in. Thank you. I'm happy to start, and then my colleagues, I'm sure, will have. Uh other points to make, but you know, from a US point of view, the, the, the use of child soldiers by any party is, is ab abhorrent and, and totally acceptable, and that's in any conflict. Um, but certainly in Yemen, we've been very alarmed by the reports, more so on the Houthi side of recruitment of child soldiers, particularly uh, to go to the front in Marib. So that's another reason why the, uh, the issues in Marib are so urgent. Um, and these are issues that we raise, honestly, with both sides, that this is a repugnant practice. You talk about the ideological drift, um, Abbas, that you mentioned uh, in, in, uh, in Yemen. And, and I think that the more the warfare goes on, the more that Yemen's young people, the more that Yemen's next generation is influenced and impacted in a very negative way and, becomes to, and comes to be influenced by the tendency to solve problems uh, through warfare. And again, that's part of the cycle that I think we must break on an urgent basis. Okay. Uh, 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 Dr. Anthony here. Jim, um, uh, if you might comment on the role of Oman. Uh, you've been to the region uh, some seven times, I believe, since you uh, appointed the president's special envoy. Uh, Oman prefers to be in the shadows as a facilitator, as a mediator, and it's been extraordinarily effective in other conflicts. Uh, can you, how, how would you explain Oman's role and what you're trying to achieve? Well, thank you, John Duke. I think it's a very important question because when we talk about building international consensus and support for a, a solution in Yemen, one absolutely must highlight the role, uh, the very positive role that Oman is playing uh, every single one of those trips, John Duke, that I've taken, and sometimes with multiple stops, I have gone to Muscat meeting with their leadership uh, and their, their experts on Yemen. And I think the fact that the, uh, the Sultan of, of Oman, who is relatively new on the throne there, is uh, his support, his personal engagement uh, uh, on seeking a resolution of the Yemen conflict is something new and very special. Um, and I think it's something that that uh, we, uh, we certainly encourage. The Omanis, as you know, took a, uh, sent a delegation to Sana'a just two weeks ago. They spent a long time there. Um, that was very much in coordination with us. We appreciated very much uh, the engagements that they had with the Houthi leadership in Sana'a. And I think it just, it, it just underscores the importance that regional actors, uh, countries like Oman can play Oman's a bordering country on Yemen, so there's a, there's a huge stake in Oman for the outcome of the Yemen conflict, and I can't thank the Omani leadership enough for the kind of support and the kind of skin in the game, as, as we say in local parlance, that they are demonstrating on the Yemen conflict. It's going to be vital going forward. Yes. Abbas, if I could uh, ask uh, another question to anyone, uh, Sarah, uh, David, or Tim. 
realistically speaking, Listen, Dr. Anthony, because we're running out of time, but yes, yes, please go ahead. Uh, realistically, with the Houthis having so much more territory than they had when they began, also the amount of weaponry that uh, fallen into their hands when they seized control of the government and so on. And now the issues of oil and gas with Marib. Uh, how realistic is it uh, to expect uh, a party that has gained that much uh, to give it up, to yield it uh, for the sake of a ceasefire? How realistic is that as a prospect? My experience uh, from, uh, from the Houthis, uh, John Duke, is that they have spoken about a commitment toward, uh, toward peace in Yemen. And I think there are certainly elements within the leadership that that favor that. And I think continued engagement with them uh, from the Omanis, from other actors, from Saudi Arabia, from ourselves, is an essential piece. And I think we have to, um, you know, continue to incentivize them. Uh, I've spoken on a number of occasions about the legitimacy of the Houthis, which is to say that the United States recognizes them as a legitimate actor. We recognize them as a group that has made significant gains. Uh, no one can wish them uh, away or out of the conflict. So let's deal with the realities uh, that are uh, that exist on the ground and bring that international consensus and also the humanitarian prerogatives, which have been so um, eloquently described in this panel, to bear on the situation. And uh, I hope encourage the Houthis to support the UN-led process and the efforts that are underway to support peace in a political transition. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Tim. Thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony. I think we're uh, we're exceeded our uh, one hour. Uh, yeah. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, any final uh, comments, uh, uh, Tim or David? I know uh, Sarah. She uh, she had to actually break away, uh, but uh, any final comments uh, before we uh, finish? Go, uh, go ahead, David, then Tim. Well, yeah, maybe just uh, there was a question raised on the child recruitment, just to say that we are working with the authorities in Sana to, uh, to try to, to address that particular issue. Um, and in fact, they reacted very violently this, this last week because they are still listed uh, for child recruitment and uh, maiming and, and killing of children. Um, so they have, I think the, the, the thing I would say is there's two things that I think they're very sensitive to. Uh, one is the, the, the international perception of them as an entity uh, being child killers actually, uh, actually hurts. Uh, and so there are leverage points in there that we can, we can utilize in our advocacy. And the second is there, I think they've come to a recognition that didn't exist in the past and last year was useful in that regard. The significant reduction of assistance coming in has caused some level of reflection in which they now understand nothing is automatic and that they actually do need to cooperate with the UN and other partners on the ground, at least to some greater degree. So we're finding some openings that we can exploit uh, with that, with those uh, sensitivities. So it's important to understand their mindset at this point in time, if you want to find effective ways forward on these, these various issues. So I'll, I'll just finish with that, but as a couple of observations, back over. Thank you. And just to close out from my side, um, it would be to really assure the audience and stress the point that the United States is in, uh, in, in, the pursuit of a peace track in Yemen in a big way, in a way that we haven't been for six years. Um, and we're determined to see a positive result. Uh, and I think the Yemeni people could count on the United States to stay in it, stay with it. Lots of bumps on the road, but I think the commitment of the administration is there. Our heart is in the right place. And we really are committed to seeing a change for the better in Yemen on the political side, on the humanitarian side. And I hope the Yemeni people will take heart and, and continue to support this effort from inside the country as well. And thank you, Abbas, and to the organization, John Duke, for hosting me and our colleagues. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, Dr. Anthony, any final, uh, uh, can you close us, please? Uh, only to uh, emphasize that the National Council has these kinds of events and programs and activities 
in pursuit of uh, the National Council's mission, which is one word, namely education. A vision is to place the American relationship uh, with uh, our Arab friends, allies, strategic working partners on a firmer foundation uh, than it is at present, than it has been. And it's likely to be um, unless enough good people on all sides uh, work bilaterally, multilaterally uh, to achieve that goal. Uh, we have had three individuals here who have provided hard to come by information, hard to come by insight, hard to come by knowledge, hard to come by uh, understanding. And as a result, we are able, we have the tools now for a much deeper analysis of the issues, the challenges, the needs, the concerns of the uh, Yemeni uh, people and their role in this overall United States Arab relationship. I think um, our specialists, we couldn't ask for two more relevant uh, people with empirical knowledge of the situation and reality on the ground. Not theoretical, not from the media, uh, but from their own direct firsthand observation and experience. We thank uh, you both and thank you, uh, Abbas, as moderator, and thank you, uh, Al Anjari, uh, for the uh, reconnaissance research uh, co sharing of this educational seminar.